wow, it's 9.45 and we're at the sermon. Oh my gosh. Um, Our first Lenten text comes to us from the beginning of the book of Matthew. Um, Throughout this season, we will follow Jesus closely and be led both by the gospel and by our Lenten devotional um, up until the events of Holy Week. So we are going to try something a little bit different as we engage the text this week. We will introduce ourselves to the passage using a spiritual discipline that is offered to us by the Lenten devotional. So this opens our eyes to the text, but it also gives space to practice the discipline with one another instead of encountering it for the first time at home. So you may have remembered to bring your devotional, but it is the first Sunday in Lent, so perhaps you did not. If not, there are some in the narthex. Just grab one on your way out. But if you do have your devotional, I'm going to be turning to week two, week two, which is March 5 through 11. Words will appear on the screen in just a moment if you don't have it. Um, So in the devotional, the way that it's organized, there is a box for each day of the week, Sunday through Saturday. And there are different ways to approach the same scripture, scripture passage each day. Today and each Sunday during the season of Lent, there is a really lovely written prayer that we will use as our prayer for illumination. It's, the prayer for illumination is the prayer that the preacher always preaches before the reading of the text. So we'll start together um, by reading the prayer, which is indeed on the screen. So would you pray this prayer with me? Gracious God, we do not live alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the way of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So in the future for Lent, we'll make sure to keep our devotionals nearby as we will kind of look at them um, together. But let's open our Bibles to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so you'll find it a bit over halfway through your pew Bible, the Bible you brought with you. Um, This is the story of Jesus's temptation, which is a familiar one for many of us, I'm sure. But let's not allow familiarity to quench the working of the Spirit. This morning, I'm going to guide you through Lectio Divina as we read Matthew 4. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition that encourages listening, contemplation, and meditation when encountering scripture. It can be done individually or as a group. And for those of you who are in ministry teams at North Holland, you've likely practiced this unintentionally together. So let's begin. Before we engage the scripture... I invite you to prepare yourself. This is the first step of Lectio Divina, to be in God's presence. So, take a second, a moment, to find a comfortable place. Maybe put the things off your lap that are in your lap. And sit. Close your eyes. I don't have my glasses on, so I can't tell if your eyes are closed. But close your eyes. Um, Perhaps cross or uncross your legs. And take a moment to be in God's presence. Whatever that means for you, just rest in the space and allow yourself to take a few deep breaths.
as you breathe, note what comes up for you in your mind. Perhaps you're worried about something. You have a list of things you need to do today. Perhaps you feel very silly right now. Do not aim to correct that thought, but rather just allow it to be and just let it go. You are about to hear from the word of the Lord. So take this moment to take on a posture of prayer and openness and vulnerability. Expect as God's child that God will speak to you. This morning, I will read the text for us as we continue in this practice. And as I do, pay attention to words, phrases, ideas, or images that you either notice within the text itself or anything else that comes to mind. You may follow along in your Bibles, but I would encourage you to close your eyes and listen. After I finish reading, I am going to invite you to share your observations with someone who is next to you. So just know that that is coming when the reading of the text is done. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're here. Now with the person next to you or friends or family or whoever is around you, I would invite you to share what it is that you noticed. So that word, that phrase, that image, whatever came to your mind. Um, what stuck with you from the text? Why do you imagine that that stuck with you? Remember, there's not a right answer here, so don't correct what your neighbor observed. Simply receive whatever it is that God is doing in their own heart. So I'll give you a couple minutes um, to share that with one another. Let's take a few moments.
Okay, friends, let's come back together. Thanks for making space um, to engage the discipline of Lectio Divina. It's truly my hope that you continue to use this practice and also the others um, outlined in the devotional, both during the season of Lent and just in your own devotional time. So thanks for engaging that. I was up here all alone, so I'm going to share with all of you what it is that I noticed. The first time that I read this text, I noticed specific phrases from within the text itself that just caught my attention. I was drawn to the phrases, into the wilderness, and he was hungry, and every word that comes from the mouth of God, and do not put the Lord your God to the test. Those are the phrases that I noticed. But because I had to write a sermon, I took a second look. And the second time, I noticed the invitation to Old Testament connections in this text. And perhaps you observed it as well. 40 days. The number 40 represents the number of days and nights that Noah and his family were in the ark. The number of days and nights that Moses fasted on Mount Sinai and Elijah fasted before receiving a new call from God. And the number of years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It's also the number of days we spend as a church in the season of Lent. In my second reading, I also noticed the changes of elevation within the text. We start in the wilderness. We rise to the top of the temple in the holy city. And we end on a high mountain overlooking the kingdoms of the world. With each change in elevation, the stakes rise for Jesus as well. The changes in elevation add drama to the narrative. I noticed that in my second reading. In my third reading, I noticed the placement of the text within the gospel itself. In Matthew 1, we read of Jesus' genealogy and birth. Matthew 2 highlights Jesus' early years. Matthew 3 introduces John the Baptist, and indeed Jesus himself is baptized. And Matthew 4, where we are, begins with Jesus' temptation, which then launches him into ministry. The angels attend Jesus, and in the very next paragraph, Jesus begins to preach. Within the Gospels, this story appears in Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke. Matthew and Luke's accounts are very similar, in fact, nearly verbatim, but Mark's account is only two verses long. Mark says this, At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all heard circulating stories about Jesus, and therefore the stories they each choose to tell And the order they put the stories in is incredibly significant. We know from the end of John's gospel that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not recorded in the good books. But these have been preserved for us by the Spirit of God, that we might know God. So after my third reading, I realized that I needed to take a closer look. Why did Matthew specifically preserve this story? What does this text say about Jesus? When reading the story of Jesus' temptation, it's easy to put ourselves in Jesus' position. 
and imagine how God wants us to respond when we are being tempted. The invitation to consider the implications of our own sinfulness and internal or external reactions to temptation is certainly in the text, but it is not the purpose of the text. This passage is not first and foremost about us. It is about Jesus. It is about Jesus and his emerging identity as the Messiah. It is no accident that Jesus ends up in the wilderness after his baptism. As adjunct professor of New Testament, Audrey West notes, Jesus is not being punished for something he has done wrong. He's been led by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, to be tempted, to be tested by the devil. His scriptural debate with the devil functions as an assessment or perhaps a proof of his readiness as God's beloved son for the mission entrusted to him. He has the credentials and he has the authority for this mission, amply demonstrated in Matthew's gospel by the genealogy and birth narratives. This story, the story of Jesus' temptation, is eternal because it's simultaneously stretching its arms toward the past and to an emerging future for all the people of God, all while being told in the present moment. As we all know, Jesus stood in a long line of failed deliverance attempts, reaching back to the garden. Paul remembers in his letter to the Romans that in Adam, death reigned through that one man. And as Paul says, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? In other words, through one person, one nod to disobedience, all were condemned. And just as all were condemned through the one, so all are made righteous through this new one. It had to be established that Jesus was the right human for the job. He was clearly called out as God's son at his baptism, but he had to be the right human too. Note that what happens in the wilderness does not stay in the wilderness. Rather, it is central to the life and ministry of Jesus. The answers are different on different occasions. In the wilderness, Jesus says no three times, but that is not always the case. The choices Jesus faces in the wilderness come back around. Jesus refuses in the desert to turn stones into bread, but before long, he will feed thousands with just a few loaves and fish, and he will teach his disciples to pray to God for their daily bread. Jesus refuses to take advantage of his relationship to God by hurling himself down from the heights of the temple. But at the end of his earthly ministry, he endures the taunts of others while trusting God's power to the end upon the height of the Roman cross. Jesus turns down the devil's offer of political leadership over the kingdoms of the world and instead offers the kingdom of heaven to all those who follow him in the ways of righteousness. So the wilderness tests of the temptation account are not a one-time ordeal to get through, but they are tests of preparation for the choices Jesus makes in his earthly ministry. Indeed, readers of Matthew's gospel have an opportunity to see how the wilderness experience is replayed in Jesus' encounters with people who are sick or hungry or in need with people who use their connections to power to ascertain his loyalty, including lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees who test him. 
and indeed with persons who too easily worry about the world's assessment of greatness rather than God's. The temptation is not that food and power and leadership are inherently wrong, but rather that they can be used for the wrong ends or at the wrong time. So the temptation story is first and foremost about Jesus, about his identity as the Messiah, about his ministry. But of course, it also reminds us that it contains a lot of truth about our own temptation. The lie that temptation tells us, and this lie has been spreading since the beginning of time, that lie is that we have ownership over our own lives. The lie that temptation tells us is that we have ownership over our own lives. Just make this choice or that choice, temptation says. It doesn't even matter that much anyway. It's all about what you want or what makes you feel like you're honoring God. It's all on you to make this decision, and the consequences only affect you. Quick, make up your mind. Just don't think about it. This lie The lie that temptation says we have ownership over our own lives, that lie has trapped every follower of God in one way or another in small, careful, quiet, insignificant ways that feel like nothing until one day you are so far away from everything that used to matter to you that you barely recognize yourself anymore. If the first myth temptation tells us is that we have ownership over our own lives, the second lie is that there is no way to prepare for temptation. All we can do is conquer it in the present moment or completely mess it up. Now, sometimes temptation does catch us off guard, particularly when we have not experienced temptation in this or that way before. But the truth of the matter is that it is possible to ready ourselves for temptation Jesus was ready because he was, number one, focused on his ministry and God's purpose for him. But number two, he knew his scripture. Jesus knew the word of God. Jesus used scripture both as a weapon and as armor. He fought with it and shielded himself from the devil's blows. Satan looked for weakness, but Jesus was prepared. Jesus did not have to be strong. In fact, He was very much not strong in this story. He was famished and exhausted after 40 days of not eating. Jesus' head, heart, and mind were simply in the right place. He was simply in the right place. It is not about being strong or not being able to handle temptation until you've reached a certain level of holiness. It all goes back to our first call to love the Lord our God with everything we've got and to center our spirits on God's word. Temptation is much more predictable than we assume. We're just called to prepare ourselves. The good news is that no matter what, the one who is with you always, even to the end of the age, has already gone ahead of his followers, even to the most forsaken places of the wilderness. He meets us in the most difficult tests of our own lives. No place is so desolate, so distant, or so challenging that Jesus has not already been there. No test or temptation is so great that Jesus has not already overcome it. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was brought low. Jesus took on the very nature of a servant, as we read in Philippians 2. 
Jesus was tempted both to prove his worthiness to be the Messiah and to give us a glimpse of God we can trust. Jesus knew sin. Jesus knew temptation more deeply than we could possibly imagine because he actively resisted it, experiencing it as you and I do. So friends, when you're tempted, turn to Jesus. But even more importantly, before you're tempted, turn to Jesus. And in all things, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. I'd like to kind of close the Lectio Divina loop to exit out of the sermon. So at this time, I would invite you to recall whatever you discussed with whoever you discussed it with, um, the word or the phrase, whatever stuck with you. And I would like you to pray with one another over that word. So you can, you know, pray for yourself. Thank God for giving you that word, that God would bless you in pursuing that word and understanding what it means for you. Or you can pray for one another. Pray that your neighbor would be blessed in pursuing God through that word. And I will close this together in a few moments with a congregational prayer. So would you turn to your neighbor and pray? Let's pray. God, today we claim that while temptation is all around us, we are first and foremost your children. You have redeemed us and set us apart for your kingdom's purposes. Make it our life's mission to remember this in everything we do and in everything we say. May our every action bring you glory. And when we do fall away, Give us the humility to return to you once again. Jesus, you are truly our Emmanuel, our Messiah. You have saved us in every way.